On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Lawrence Gowan of the rock band Sticks, and you are listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn. I'm just I'm listening to my weekly mixtape in my head constantly. I'll bet you are too. Welcome to my weekly mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. One of the things I'm excited to do on the show is speak with some of the incredible artists whose songs have graced my mixtapes and playlists throughout my life. And tonight's guest happens to be one of those artists from his incredible solo work through his current decades-long run as singer and keyboard player for Styx. I am honored to welcome to the show the one and only Lawrence Gowan. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. Absolutely my pleasure, Brian. Great to be on your mixtape. Well, the first question I would like to start by asking you is the same question I ask all of my guests. The word mixtape, does that have any meaning to you in your career and why? Well, you know, it's funny because when I saw that on the the description uh, that we're going to chat, I always think of a mixtape as something that's on a cassette, (laughs) on a cassette, basically just a a collection of, of your favorite songs. It's not necessarily an album, but a collection of your favorite songs. And it usually would be something in a car anyway. You'd squeeze in between listening to one of your, you know, you're listening to an album, whatever album it happens to be, and then you happen to put on your mixtape just so you can kind of shake up the vibe a little bit. And that's what it means to me. Does it mean something completely different now that I'm unaware of? No. To me, the word mixtape always came with a connotation of when I grew up making mixtapes, that's what this show is a love letter to. I would spend hours taking all of my favorite songs and turning them into my story based on how I put them into a sequence that I would want to listen to with my friends. Yes. With modern playlists, you kind of just drag and drop a bunch of songs onto your Spotify playlist and hit shuffle. And I'm trying to bring back that thought process on why songs work so well back to back. I see. Yes. It's more of a, the, the soundtrack of your life and kind of a bit of a narrative, a background narrative to your thought process and to your little, your adventures along the way and things that are meaningful. I, I think that's a great, yeah, that's, that's more or less, that's more or less how I first came upon them was, yeah, people were trying to kind of, I suppose, define their personality in some way by the songs that they, that they listened to. And after all, we all do that anyway, I think. A hundred percent. And one of the bands that growing up, my parents and I truly bonded over was your music and the music of Styx with a discography of over 50 years going back to Styx self-titled 1972 album. The band has never slowed down, including the most recent effort. 2021's Crash of the Crown shows that you guys have a lot more to say on a musical level still. How would you describe the band's musical evolution across five decades? Boy, that's that's a that's a tough one. I would say that if it, first of all, I'll try to pick what the central, what I think are the central strengths that have allowed the band to traverse over five decades. I'd say first of all, there's a dedicated devotion to melody. That's number one. Just basically trying to come up with melodies. That stick in people's heads. And long before I joined the band, I've, you know, I'm in my 25th year now. That was what I noticed about Sticks was there were very memorable me- melodies that they were just once they were in your head, they would take up residence there permanently. And that's true of all the bands that I've loved most. They they just have melodic content that doesn't seem to wane with time. The other thing is a determination for the band to go on, you know, to continue despite uh, you know all the all the all the the challenges that come along the way in the life of any band, you know, it's very very difficult to make a band stay together for five years, let alone fifty. So the band have had to along the way they've made tough decisions. They've made they've had to you know be very very determined and 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 self aware 
as a band to make it through all those periods. And as you mentioned, you know, I think Crash of the Crown being the, the album that came out in the 50th year of the band's existence, for that to get to uh, the number one on the Billboard uh, rock album chart, because after all, it was conceived as an album, as a 40-minute piece, it really is remarkable to think that it, it's a band that seems to have found the right direction forward in all eras. Well, at this juncture of the band's career, Sticks could easily walk out on stage and play a two-hour set of nothing but hits, Babe, Come Sail Away, Renegade, Best of Times, Lady. But then you have songs like Common Ground from Crash yeah. of the Crown that, to me, fit right in with all of those songs. How does the band decide, with all of these years of music, how a show yeah. should flow from decade to decade and song to song? That's a great question. I, I think that not only is the band involved in what we wind up playing in a set, but in fact, like our production crew very often, well, on a daily basis, they have not just so much an opinion, but a very informed opinion. Because for example, our um, our stage manager, he knows what we've played in various regions of the country or even in the world uh, the last time we were there. And so he'll wow. take that into consideration when when it comes to what we play. So I'm just thinking of, you know, last night we played to, uh, I guess, about 17,000 people in uh, Lewiston, New York, uh, at a place called Art Park. And that was a set that had to be comprised for that because since it was on the just across the border on the American side of, of Niagara Falls, to give you a regional perspective, you know, we, we decided to do songs like do the, the standard ones that are in every stick show, you know, like we're, we're always going to play Renegade and we're going to do Come Sail Away and Blue Collar Man and Grand Illusion, you know, those are in there. But for example, Miss America, which hasn't been in, in shows for a little while and suddenly we're starting to, to get that back again. That's a really important song to play in that region because Grand Illusion was a huge record. People know it as an album. And so it's a great it's a it's a great number to put into that show. We opened with a song from Crash of the Crown called "To Those," which is a very brief piece, but it it just is the right kind of energy for the type of audience that, that we were playing to. So that went into the show. We put a song from my solo career that became a stick song after I joined called "The Criminal Mind." We put that into the mm -hmm. set because mm -hmm. radio in in Buffalo and in that region. That are right across the border. They played that song extensively on the radio, and they still hear it. And we basically, from doing interviews like this, a regional type of interviews, will ask, "Are you going to play this song in this concert?" And a criminal mind came up often in the, the little interviews and chats that I had with people leading up to that show. So that's kind of the the ways that the the sticks set list, which is extremely hard to crack. <laughs> and that's how it gets decided. It's JY made a comment many years ago where he said, you know, well, we used to have some pretty um not too intense, but somewhat uh pointed disagreements as to what to play on any given night. He said, Well, we just seem to have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to you know choices of great songs to play. And I, I love that expression. So we we always seem to concoct just the right kind of items on the menu, so to speak, that speak to that audience in a particular way. Well, I want to follow up on where you're going with this, because as much as I love the hits that you talked about, there's a part of me as a Styx fan that does enjoy some of the deeper cuts. That's and great. just off the top of my head, if I go back to Kilroy Was Here, because that was one of the albums my parents uh, basically introduced me to the band with, songs right. like Double Life and Heavy Metal Poisoning yeah. haven't been part of the set list in a long time. And then if you fast forward into the 90s, Edge of the Century, Show Me the Way was something that was played during a lot yep. of my high school events. Yep. Those are just a couple of examples as a longtime Styx fan, that songs that I'd love to hear at a show. Do you, as a member of the band, have any error that maybe there are songs that you would like to see dusted off for a live run through? Because there's no shortage of amazing material here. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. We, um, I, I know what you're saying because, especially you know, and since I can see you on this, this podcast, <laughs> uh, I can see that you, you, you know, you're one of the younger people that came along to Sticks probably after these albums had been out a while, and I have. It's it has been noticed that younger people don't tend to necessarily gravitate toward what were the songs that were played endlessly on the radio. 
you know, because you don't have that kind of shaping your your opinion or your your viewpoint of the band in any way. So, for example, take a song like Man in the Wilderness. You know, that's another track I got. Pieces of Eight is another track like that. Yes, These are some yes. Favorites, and I notice there's some audience favorites as well. They, they really want to hear those songs and those ones really speak. That's part of their mixtape, so to speak. You know, that's part of what speaks to their life and that they can relate so well to. And I happen to really, I, I love that. You know, we brought back, for example, Lorelei recently. That's a song that had been off the set list for a couple of years, and yet it's the first stick song I ever took note of in, in on radio in Canada, in, in uh, Toronto, was Lorelei. And uh, so I'm really glad that that one was brought back. And, and uh, you know, there, there are several others. And now that we've had both with the mission and Crash of the Crown, you know, we get a lot of requests for specific songs on those records that really connect with people. I know that... Um, you know, recently we've been playing Tommy get Shaw gets to get his banjo out and we've been doing our wonderful lives. And that seems to be a, a kind of a, a sentiment that that, that, that of people are relating to very strongly at the moment because having gone through what we did just a couple of years ago, people are still kind of re- resetting and rebalancing from the aftermath of that and our wonderful lives seems to kind of address that. Well, since we're talking about some of the newer songs from Styx, I want to dive into that because I'd like to light it up and let's get this show on the road because one of my favorite more recent songs from the band is Gone, Gone, Gone from your 2017 concept album, The Mission. In a world of singles-driven streaming that we've seen evolve over the last two decades, I applauded the fact that the band took the song's lyrics to heart and literally got this show on the road playing the mission in its entirety on tour, which goes against the grain of a singles only trend. Because most people would assume if you've been a band for 50 years, you're going to go out, you're going to play the same 10 hits night after night. And here you guys were going completely against that. And to me, from an artistic standpoint, that just speaks massive volumes. And it also speaks to the fact that you and the rest of the band truly believed in this music to do that, which was a risky move and one that I applaud. So can I ask what the band's thought process was behind taking a full brand new album out on the road like that? Sure. First of all, I'm sympathetic to bands who, who basically, you know, pare it down to the, the, the 10 hits or whatever, you know, that they, that are going to work and are going to satisfy their audience. I, I, I can understand that mindset. The thing about sticks, because every band is different. Every it's like every it's like every family is different. There's a, a unique blend that that makes it work. We've always had this within the band this enthusiasm to come up with new ideas, and we always have. Even though there was a long hiatus between making uh, studio records, that's a different story. But new ideas are always bubbling up, and they're always embraced with enthusiasm. And Alongside that is the knowledge and the the acknowledgement, I guess it's the way of putting it, is that audiences have really specific expectations when they come and see a classic rock band. They have specific songs they definitely want to hear. And so in order to, to appease that, they will get that every night at a stick show. That's part of what, what the, the dynamic is. But they also have to see that, that we're throwing ourselves wholeheartedly into where the band is at this very moment in its, the arc of its trajectory of uh, existence. And we kind of played a, a bit of a balancing act in that we specifically wrote the last two albums, The Mission and Crash the Crown, as albums, first of all, because the streaming thing, that you, the, you, there's, there's a lot to the question you just asked. The, the whole nature of streaming is not all that conducive to bands of the classic rock era. You know, people stream, for example, let's take, for example, say Led Zeppelin Four. you know, where everyone knows um, Stairway to Heaven. But I know that record as an entire album, and you have, mm-hmm. to, have to work your way through it to get to Stairway to Heaven, and there are a lot of steps in between, and it's all one part of the same book. I'll use that as, an, as, a, as a way of describing it, where you wouldn't just continually read the last chapter you would basically try to drink it in in its entirety or in a way where it's presented to you because the album is an art form 
It really is. And, and we've we've rediscovered that. And that's part of what the little light bulb that came on in our heads was let's not try to make singles and, and songs that are that are that connect with where streaming is now. Let's instead make albums where there's a cohesive statement that the band is really behind and is in is definitely enthusiastic about and, and in love with. And then let's feed it to the audience in tiny bites. Like what we did was we would use little bits of the new album to segue into classic hits. For example, I just mentioned to those. By the time we finished to those, we're already, it segues directly into Blue Collar Man. So that the two songs have a, a symbiotic kind of connection in the, in the, in the show. Another great example of that, I'll use this, uh, Tommy Shaw sings a song called Sound the Alarm. That segues straight into Crystal Ball. And what the beauty of that is that you get the perspective of Sound the Alarm is a man who's, you know, looking at his life on the whole and seeing that it's come to a point where things are have not necessarily panned out, you know, all perfectly and need to be addressed in the immediate sense. Whereas Crystal Ball, when he suddenly harkens back to that, you hear the young man singing about wanting to absorb and embrace the future. So the two songs, they really are bookends, you know? So we look for opportunities like that. Chuck Panazzo and I do this a tiny little piece of music I have on Crash the Crown called Lost at Sea. And uh, it's only 39 seconds long, but it's a poignant little piece on the record and a, an important piece. But in the live show, that kind of lays the little carpet, the little welcome carpet before we go in to come sail away. So it kind of gets people into that nautical frame of mind, and 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 that's the way we did it. And now with the mission, we didn't just immediately go out and play the album in its entirety. We we did it like we did what I just was describing for a year. And by the end of that year, we found there were so many people saying, "Are you ever going to play this album in its entirety? Because I love listening to the whole thing and I want to hear it." And we had enough of that. Uh, those requests that the Palms in Las Vegas said, why don't you come and do a show of that entire record? And then you can play the hits after it, you know, and that's what we did. So we had Sticks, the mission to see how that would work. And people came out, you know, the place was sold out for two nights in a row. And, and um, we did notice it was mostly a younger audience, you know, all in their mission t-shirts, et cetera, because they've come to know the band, say in the last 20 years, 30 years, and they want they want to embrace the the entire history of the band and something that's concurrent with their lives. So they they sent they tend to want to be hungrier for the for the the latest statement from the band. So with all of that said, that's how we have been kind of navigating the uh, the realities of of the music world today and how Sticks fits into it. That's fantastic. And I want to go back to my introduction to Sticks, which is thanks in part or in full to my parents who raised me with fantastic music. Yeah. And my father felt that as a young lad of five, six, seven years old, a song that I would resonate with was the opening track on Kilroy was here. That being Mr. Roboto. Yeah. Because as a child into star Wars and all that stuff, here's yeah. this. Yeah. It was a very cool way to introduce a young person to sticks music. Yeah. Now, this song wasn't part of the band's live set for a pretty long time, right. but has seen a huge resurgence as of late. Can you talk about the reception when you first reintroduced the track and then the feedback you've gotten on bringing it back since? It was, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, little story with that song because I remember hearing it uh, on the radio the first time and noticed it sticks along with The Queen, along with Yes, along with Genesis. All the bands that have progressive music as part of their uh, vocabulary, you know, musical vocabulary, were all attempting to transition from the 70s into the 80s and embracing the new toys that were available and the new ways of expressing themselves. And they were suddenly, you know, faced with bands like, you know, Talking Heads and, and Duran Duran and, and you know, the... the uh, U2 and you know the, all these 80s bands and how did how did these classic rock bands fit into this so it was a bold move you know uh, to embrace the new technology but what's great about um, Mr. Roboto was I know at the time a lot of people thought of it and I, I'll include myself I, you know so I'll just say I, I was one of the people that thought of it as, as 
kind of a kitschy song at the time. It didn't have the same kind of 70s bravado, just as I did even with Queen doing same body language or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Or even Genesis, uh, you know, quite honestly doing, you know, the transition that they made into the 80s, you know, with with Gen- with uh, Phil Collins, et cetera. But then as the picture began to kind of write itself in, in my mind, I started to hear it as, you know, this is actually a very prescient song. It's kind of showing where, where we're going. Now, once a song... Mr. Roboto, once it has stood the test of time, you have to stop questioning its validity. You just have to completely accept it as as something that really is meaningful, you know. And I I hear it that way. And about I'd say as far back as about ten years ago, when I would bring it up that maybe we should be playing this song because you know it's referred to so often in popular culture, etc. The only thing holding it back was not the song itself, was not even the music of uh, ever, the music of, of Kilroy was here, but with J.Y., Tommy, and Chuck, who were there when that record came out, it was the residual feelings that on the tour of that album, that's when the band really kind of felt they had met their demise. They basically were at, you know, they were at odds in quite a way. So the memory of that was kind of, glommed on to the actual album but time you know as it does tend to uh you know recalibrate our our uh, vision our version of things began to kind of soften up and then it was that we were oh that's right we were doing a tour with joan jett and we thought we need to do something in this show that people are not expecting because joan was a different type of act for us to be touring with and we it really worked and so suddenly, Mr. Roboto was brought out uh, up for discussion again. We decided, let's go to Nashville and rehearse it for a couple of days and see how we feel about it. So that's what we did. And of course, you know, we leaned into it a bit heavier, I guess you, you could use that expression, than, than the original. We amped up the, ramped up the guitars a little bit. My own approach to singing it, you know, I had to, I, I love the perspective of us in a song where the singer it has a secret to reveal. I just love that anyway. And that song is built around that. Yes. And so I love that as a, as a bit of rock theater, you know, so I can throw myself into, into it lyrically. And then, you know, my appreciation for what a great piece of, you know, of pop culture it is, what, what an excellent song it is, has just continued to grow as we've played it. Now, initially, I, I will say this, when we played it, you could see some people in the audience. It was a divisive thing because some people, well, we could see up front, we're not we're not all that crazy about us bringing Mr. Roboto back into the set. Wow. Yeah, yeah, because it because they were a, a part of the audience that was probably with the band for from the very beginning and saw that as a divisive or whatever they want us, you know, however they they subjectively viewed that song, but that dissipated within about two weeks. It just went away. I, we don't really know why, or maybe it's just because the, the way we were playing it and the way we were kind of throwing ourselves into it and how well it fit, slotted in between, you know, we would end the show with Come Sail Away and then come back for an encore of Mr. Roboto and, and Renegade. And it just seemed it just seemed to be a great, you know, reflection of those three big moments in the band's history. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 
and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as someone who's written and released a ton of successful solo music outside of Sticks, songs like A Criminal Mind, You're a Strange Animal, Moonlight, Desires, just to name a few, can you talk about the dynamics in writing music as a solo artist versus writing music in a group with sticks as you did with the last 20 years of albums with the band. I can, I can. You know, my first three solo albums, you know, they were all in Columbia Records, but they were only released in Canada. I wrote them entirely, you know, music and lyrics. And I considered myself a 100% solo type writer and artist. Okay. Fortunately, by 1990, I decided, you know, one of the things I might be missing is there's something about co-writing suddenly that it interests me just to see if I can, if I can do it. And the first person that I worked with very fortuitously was a guy named Eddie Schwartz who wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot for Pat Benatar. But since writing that song, he had become a very favored writing partner for a lot of people. And I thought Eddie might really kind of be a good way to start. And he was, you know, because we... um we seemed to, you know, we, we wrote about maybe five songs that we that we just tossed away, but just to kind of get get in the groove of of how to do it, and then we hit on something really strong that, that did well uh, on my on my fourth album, and I learned through him how it kind of works, how you how you really, um, you know, how it is to write with another person. And first of all, it doesn't work the same way every time, but there are certain key factors that come along, and one is to really learn to listen and absorb what the other person is putting forward before you can really add or or subtract from what the idea is. 
But eventually, from writing with Eddie and then writing with Jim Vallance, who, who co-wrote with uh, all the big Brian Adams songs, a lady named Annette Ducharme wrote one, one song with her that made it onto an album. I learned just a little bit of what it is to kind of co-write with people. So when I joined Sticks, I had that kind of in my in my little lexicon already as to, okay, this is going to be different. But the diff, the hurdle there was, it's one thing to co-write with people on a one-off basis, but to be in a band with them where you're, a, you're an actual band, it takes some time to really let the ideas meld together in a really meaningful way. You know, you can kind of glom pieces together or, or you can almost like a, like a, like a Lego set, you know what I mean? Where it's fairly predictable in the outcome. But really what, what is amazing is when someone's got one idea and an all, almost opposing idea to it, but almost as if it's coming from a completely different space. When those two things clash, creative friction is created. And that's where songs like Crash of the Crown can come out, you know, which wound up being the title track, a song where, first of all, you've got three lead singers on it. It starts out with JY and then Tommy, most of Tommy and myself, and then it ends with myself. And no one in the band could have written that song alone. It would be impossible. You couldn't do it. Uh, you had to have these disparate ideas, sort of um, almost obtusely at first, uh, trying to figure out how they locked together. But the moment they did, you couldn't pull them apart, no matter how hard you tried. And you realize this is what band writing is. This is what this is what the magic of it is that you really are this kind of <laughs> collective brain that has con concocted something that that is. It has its own spirit that lives outside you and yet came from you as, as a group. It's fascinating. Now, with Styx being kind of a progressive rock band in yeah. the 70s and obviously going through different things, you have worked with a lot of progressive artists such yeah. as Tony Levin, Jerry Murata, yeah. and David Rhodes from yeah. Peter Gabriel's band, John Anderson of Yes, yeah. Ken Greer of Red Rider, Alex Lifeson of Rush. Yeah. Did working with those musicians in your solo career, help make the transition into becoming a full-time member of Styx more seamless for you as an artist? Uh, undoubtedly. Uh, undoubtedly. I, I Much like co-writing, when you get to work with great artists, like, like, like I've been so lucky to have, yeah, you begin to see how they how they approach the craft of what they do, you know, and, and where the artistry comes through from that. And you can also really observe up close the amount of effort and and the work they've put into how great how great they are to be alongside it's evident you know and yes it very much did prepare me for for that you know and i and it's, when you're playing with other players that you really admire it's just a fantastic moment it's just that's the best way i can describe it it's like you're you're kind of in in this great mind this great headspace where where it's like wow and we're riding on this this vehicle together, you know, and and what you're throwing into this is really is really lifting the whole experience. That's basically where it happens, you know. When when I was yeah. working on Strange Animal on that album, you know, having Tony Levin and Jerry Murata and David Rhodes and another fellow named Chris Jarrett who played guitar on that album as well. And an excellent producer, having that that whole kind of group together and and elevating everything up, you know. Another notch, another notch, another notch, because each player has such unique and useful ideas, you know, that, that keep kind of tossing the ball back and forth. It, it's that definitely prepared me for, for working with, with sticks. And that's probably why that may be one of the chief reasons as to why it's worked out for so long as it has, is that, you know, I had all this kind of background experience that, that I guess I brought with me and little by little, you know, there's been moments when that's all been very, very useful along the way. Well, one of the songs I'd like to touch on is The Grand Illusion. Yeah. We're in 1999. You have established yourself as a solo artist. Yeah. You are stepping into a band with a storied career. You have a storied career. Right. And you're stepping in front of the microphone to sing one of the band's most iconic songs for the first time. Yeah. And you don't know how the audience is going to react. Yeah. This is two very talented groups coming together, yeah. as in you and the band. And this is the first time out. 
Walk me through that moment, what that is for you as an artist, singing that song for the first time. I, I think I think we, we touched on this in the, in the past, Brian. I think I'm glad you remembered it. That's a vivid moment in, in my mind because once we decided we were going to do this and you know I was going to join the band and we started our, our rehearsals, it, it kind of seemed very, very easy. You know, it's like we fit together really, really well. And, you know, we played for a few friends before we went out to do the first show. And that that was all easy enough. But the moment we st- <laughs> the moment we stepped on stage in front of the, you know, a live audience, it was in Branson, Missouri, which I don't think we've ever been back to. Oh, maybe once we have. No, no, that's, that's not correct. Yeah, we did go back once. I do remember drawing breath to go into Grand Illusion and thinking, oh, you know, remember it's 1999. It's a different time. I'm thinking they're about to hear someone else sing this song for the very first time. <laughs> you know, I don't. I couldn't think of any covers out there of, of Grand Illusion at that time. And I, I thought, um, this might be all resolved in about four minutes' time when we finish this song as to whether this is going to work or not. And so that did cross my mind back then. But fortunately, Grand Illusion is a song that I could very much relate to. I, I, I think it's a great lyric that touches on the prefabricated uh, view of what success is, you know, and I, I like that very much as a theme. By the time I got to the end of the song, the audience, you know, it really, they loved it because they were all arms up in the air and, you know, high fives and all that. And that's because I feel that the, in the spirit of the band, the strength of that song, first of all, but the spirit of the band was somehow still being presented. Much this, I like to think, okay, I can't say for sure, but much the same as when I went and saw Genesis for the first time with when the drummer, who I, that's all I knew him as, I heard had become the singer of the band. I only knew Peter Gabriel and Tony Banks because Tony was the the uh, the keyboard player. I only knew their names, yeah. you know? And when I heard that the drummer was going to become the singer, I thought, well, this is definitely not going to work. And a friend of mine gave me a ticket to go see them, and I reluctantly went along, and then I found out very quickly, the drummer's name is Phil Collins, and how the spirit of Genesis did not seem to be detracted from. It was amazing no. to me how someone as great as Peter Gabriel could be suddenly not in a band and still have the band, the spirit of the band, remain intact. Is a remarkable thing, but I took note of it then, and I remember thinking, you know, had that not happened... Would we have all those amazing Peter Gabriel solo records? Would I be buying tickets to see Gabriel when he comes to Toronto? Yeah. Denver? I, you know, like suddenly we had two great bands. And so I, I kind of felt like, you no, know, bands themselves carry a spirit that's outside the band. And yet it needs to be kind of nurtured and needs to kind of survive if the band is going to go through any big changes. And so, um, you know, only time will tell. Well, We've been doing this for an awful long time. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things back in 2010 and 2011, you took the spirit of this version of Sticks and put your stamp on classics throughout, throughout the band's catalog. And that was the Regeneration 1 and 2 albums. Yeah. Songs like Too Much Time on My Hands. And then, believe it or not, a cover song, uh, several cover songs from Tommy Shaw's stint with Damn Yankees, doing high enough, which for me as a 45 year old man, high enough hit right at that time in my life where I was just starting to date power ballads were a huge thing. And I've gone on record on this show in the past saying that high enough is probably one of my favorite songs of all time. Right. The beautiful soaring harmonies and that vocal performance and what Tommy and Jack blades and Ted Nugent do on the original is amazing. I love what you guys were able to do oh. to bring that into the sticks fold. And I'm curious, what was it like taking a song that was from kind of outside of the sticks realm? So this would be high enough. And this would also double up for your song that you brought into the band's fold and making it part of sticks yeah. moving forward. You know, that um, that's right. We, we did high enough for, but a year after that album. Yeah. And again, it's, it's a great song. So, I mean, you know, and you had the the original singer over there with Tommy there. So the, a lot of the pieces just kind of fell into place very, very easily, quite honestly. And and uh, 
Yeah, I remember recording that and thinking, God, this this could be a hit all over again because I just it's it's, it's the song that just works. <laughs> That's all there is to it. It's one of those songs that's just perfectly balanced and just works. And we were we were able to hit the notes. That's the high. That's the hardest. Oh, that you nailed it! I absolutely I nailed the it. perfect perfect title for that. Yeah, that whole you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's up there in in BG's territory. <laughs> but you guys knocked it out of the park, and that's something that I was I was happy to, to hear that song continue a life because yeah. for me the song just resonated with me on a personal level, and to hear the band continue with it, put a big smile on my face. And that's great to hear, Brian. I, I think, I think also, you know, one of the uh, realities is, you know, I think, I think, you know, Tommy Shaw definitely, you know, he, he had that successful career with damn Yankees, mm-hmm. successful second act, let's call it that. And I know early on, he, he would have liked to have gone and done even toured with them again, perhaps, but there just wasn't time. There was just suddenly, you know, sticks had taken center stage again. And, and there were, you know, we were playing at a pace of, and we still are, about 100 shows a year. Yeah, oh, he, yeah. he would just burn himself out if he's trying to do that. So the, the easiest thing to do is just bring the song into the band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it worked really well, and I love that rendition. So I wanted to touch on that, even though but, it's not originally part of the Sticks catalog. Now, while we're on the topic of cover songs... You have had your original songs covered. Um, Retrocity did an acapella version of You're a Strange Animal. Yeah. Styx has had punk versions of their songs yeah. redone, note-by-note reimaginings, all the way out to South Park covering Come Sail Away in the voice of Cartman. Best version ever, yes. I mean, seriously, what is it like for you to hear another artist reinterpret your work in a, a different way, whether it be a acapella version, a punk version, or a comedic version like South Park. Well, as a songwriter, it's 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 one of the greatest things, right? For any songwriter, it's a great thing. You know, I mentioned it, Eddie Schwartz with "Hit Me with Your Best Shot." He had recorded that song for his own solo record when when someone said, "Oh, no, we've got this uh, new uh, uh, artist at Benatar, and we think you know we'd like her to record that song." And he, Obviously loved the, the version because it certainly worked. I've heard really interestingly beautiful flamenco guitar versions of a criminal mind, for example. And I I, I love that, you know. But then again, you know, I even heard karaoke versions that I've also enjoyed too, because people, you know, you can see how much enthusi- uh, you know, how much people want to throw themselves into a song because it's, you know, back to your original theme, it's part of the mixtape of their lives. Uh, no, I think I think it's it's a wonderful thing. It's also something that I I continue to, to do because there's artists that I really admire so much, and I I love doing covers of of other people's songs just to do them. Gordon Lightfoot, who left the planet recently, mm-hmm. yeah. so many uh, amazing, phenomenal songs that you know I had to immediately open up his catalog and, and you know try to keep his kind of. Uh, memory alive through his songs and, and his discovered you know i forgot the song called beautiful which was one of his uh, one of his hit, many hits but not one that's as, as immediately known i immediately wanted to do a, a version of it which i did and put out it just on you know on instagram etc and it's amazing how people respond to that you know that that it, it's good to hear other artists do cover songs that have meant so much to them i guess it's our version of, of mixtaping in a weird way is that we yeah. actually play the song and kind of put our own inflection into it. And I have to ask, with the mindset of that South Park version, did that introduce the band to a whole new audience who was like, who is this? And you, all of a sudden you have people that you don't recognize in the crowd because this song introduced sticks to them? Yeah, at this, I'm, I'm sure that happens. First of all, I joined at a very fortuitous time because the, all these cultural references to sticks. We're just beginning when I when I joined the 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 initial one. I remember the initial phone call with Jay was that was that Adam Sandler was using it, it uh, referencing sticks several times in a movie called Big Daddy, which I remember. Yes. Sure. That was the beginning of it. But then suddenly you saw TV commercials and South Park and Scrubs and Sex in the City and all these various cultural references to uh, to sticks that, that, that kept popping up. So 
I, that I'm sure is part of how the net got thrown wider and, and the audience became broader because of that. Well, I've talked about a lot of my favorite songs from you and the band tonight, but I would love for you to put your stamp on this mixtape that we've discussed throughout this episode. So if you had to choose three songs that would best define your legacy as a musical artist, it could be from any juncture of your career, solo or stuff with sticks. What three songs would you pick and why? Okay. So I have to, boy, this is a, this is one hell of a question. Um, so let me, let me pick three songs that are not of, myself or sticks just so i can kind of go with that i would say and this is really off the top of my head like crazy i would say probably oh gosh this is really tough i saved the best for last <laughs> yeah you certainly did you're stumping me I, i'm gonna, i'm just gonna go quickly here i just just so I, I i know i'm gonna get this wrong but there's no i guess there's no wrong there's no wrong answers first of all i'd go with a day in the life Okay, because the voices of both John and Paul are in that song. Uh, terrible to have to give up George and Ringo for this, but you, you're forcing me down this road, Brian. And <laughs> I go with a day in the life because there's something so all-embracing about that piece of music that um, just puts me in awe of the universe, I suppose. I, I go with that one first. And then probably the second one would be, oh boy, this is really tough. It might be something is this is this has become extremely obvious now, but it's again it's got such great classical overtones in it, and it's and it probably be Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen would be the second second one for so many reasons, and I guess if it was a third one, it might be it might be Rocket Man by Elton John. There you go. I guess it would be those ones. Now I can just as quickly jump in and say. I, I want to have Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, Space Oddity by David Bowie, and uh, let's see now, what would be number three on that list? The Lamb Lies Down and Broadway by Genesis. Oh, man, this is becoming you a know, hell of a mixtape here. <laughs> I'm liking where you're going. It's tough. It's, this is too tough. It's, it's far too tough. Now, I've stuck to those two eras, you know, but I have lots of, I could do, easily do a mixtape, though, of, of just the new millennium. You know, that that would... That would embrace a, a song like um, Somewhere Only We Know by Keen. That's one of my faves. Uh, I would say uh, a second one to that would be, oh, there was one on the, it was a Eurovision song by a guy named, his name Sam Ryder called If I Were an Astronaut. Uh, uh, oh, shoot. What's, what's the title of the song? Oh, I listen to it all the time. I'm up in space, man. I think it's just called, maybe it's called Space Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spacing on the title and I listen to it a lot. Um, so there, there's there's two and then possibly something by song called Elephant by uh, Tame Impala. I, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, just jumping, yeah. I'm jumping all over the place here. I'm not giving you a very good answer. Are you kidding me? This is great. <laughs> we'll, we'll go back to the very beginning and, and say, yeah, uh, I got to pick three songs. It's going to be A Day in the Life, Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man. They all have special meaning to me in, in, in so many ways. All right. And then the final stamp, the three songs from your career, whether it be Lawrence Gowan or Styx, what three songs would you choose and why? Okay. So those three songs would be probably Moonlight Desires. Because I get to hear John Anderson's part in that song too. He does a solo in that song. Yes. Uh, I'd probably go with saying Moonlight Desires, Renegade would be in there for sure. And probably Come Sail Away. Yeah. I guess it would be those three. Three fantastic tracks. Now, we've talked tonight about five decades of Styx classics, yeah. as well as your original classics. Certainly, the band shows no signs of slowing down. Is there any new music that's currently in the works that you might be privy to talk about right now? Well, we're working on new things right now. I mean, <laughs> you know, there was an idea, to, two new songs we've been working on for just in the last 10 days or so. Nothing I can tell you yet because the, everything about them could change entirely in the next a few months, you know, lyrics and, and melodic content, et cetera. But no, the, the new ideas are 
constantly coming out. The only thing that really is going to stop that is life itself. <laughs> it's going to eventually pull the plug on that. Uh, and until it, but until it does, we love what we do. I think that's part of what translates so well to the audience. Is they, they can see that we really enjoy every aspect of, uh, of doing this. You know, it's hard sometimes, like anything else that's worthwhile. It's, it's not always easy. That there are travel things that that, that become very, very uh, uh, invasive. But overall, the, the the moment of celebrating music together with with a few thousand people on their feet, with their arms in the air and big smiles on their faces, that that just makes everything worthwhile for us. Well, as one of those fans, this has truly been an honor for me, Lawrence Gowan. Thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. My pleasure, Brian. Great to talk to you again. Remember, mixtapers, you can find my weekly mixtape on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Spoutable at my weekly mixtape. You can also head to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to hear all of the music we've discussed in tonight's episode via the playlist embedded on the episode page, as well as to check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon mixtaper at Patreon.com forward slash My Weekly Mixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, enjoy the tunes. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.